All right. Folks, Jonathan Wright today, the, the applying grace to different fields continues from jazz to film. Take it away, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm Jonathan. I've been attending here for a few years and uh, graduated from Wheaton last year. Um, so I'd like to begin with a quote from André Bazin, the great Catholic film critic from France, writing in the 1950s. He writes that, Only the impassive lens, stripping its object of all those ways of seeing it, those piled-up preconceptions, that spiritual dust and grime with which my eyes have covered it, is able to present it in all its virginal purity to my attention and consequently to my love. We'll come back to this quotation later on, but for now, just notice the weight that Bazin places upon film, which he claims is able to do a deep clean of our spiritual vision. From his other writings, we know that by spiritual dust and grime, Bazin is not judging the spiritual as something to be wiped away, um, but as something to be dusted off and made present once again. The final word of the quotation is also important, love. We'll be coming back to that as well. But first, we need to get some perspective on what this medium is all about. So a few disclaimers. I'm not here going to make a defense of images in the Christian life. Uh, This is a topic of its own, so for now, let's assume that some involvement with images uh, is permissible in the Christian life. Furthermore, my presentation is not an historical argument. It does not draw much upon the history of the church. This is where I hope you all will give to it in uh, providing some helpful historical and theological connections. I'll be making a lot of bold claims, so I'll be looking to you all to be pushing back uh, because this is probably too optimistic of of a viewpoint. Um, But I think in our Christian communities, we often have a a predominantly negative view of moving images, and so I'm I'm trying to combat that. Um, So film is primarily a narrative art, but my talk is not grace in narrative, it's grace in film. So let's start with what sets film apart from other narrative arts like literature and theater. Um, And after we talk about film, uh, we'll go into grace in film and look at three points about that, and then I'll give a few examples near the end before discussion. For me, film's harnessing of photographic technologies is what allows it to display grace in a fundamentally different way than other art forms. So here are a few markers of what make film, film. Film is a vision, distinct from our lives and our viewpoints. Film is a record, a documentation of people, places, and interactions. These are often staged, yet that does not negate their status as real. Film is particular, Except for a thoroughly black frame, almost no two frames of film are identical. There is uniqueness in every moment of cinema. Film takes time. It is both a representation of another time and exists in our time. So whenever we watch a movie, there is the coming together of multiple points in history. Film is also a technology a mediation that, like all technologies, has the potential to take us away from what is important and what is most real. 
I see these risks, and yet I do think that this is a technology worth engaging in, as it can lead us outside of our immediate situations, and then, if we have the openness, swing us back into our contexts with the force of juxtaposition. So in his work, André Bazin emphasized film's essential realism, the way it relies upon a non-human mechanism to represent the world to us in a fresh way. This is generally one thing that all the arts do. They mediate, reorganize, and rescale what we perceive in order to get us to slow down, to stop taking what we perceive for granted. This, of course, is not the only thing they do. But I, I believe film does this in a particular way um, because its mediation is so fully technological to the point of being automatic. Let's think about the camera's mechanism. A strip of chemical-covered windows or frames is pulled through the body of the camera. Light streams through the camera's lens, and as each frame moves past the center of the camera, a shutter momentarily opens and allows light to strike the frame, burning its image into the light-sensitive chemicals. This process is fully automatic and can be started with the press of a button. Especially today, almost anyone can point a camera at something and take a shot. Yet what emerges has the potential to be rich, lively, beautiful, and new. The weight is placed less upon the person than on the world that lies in front of the camera. But how is this process and this medium related to grace? Paul Zoll's definition of grace in his book, Grace in Practice, is one-way love. I propose that grace is also a matter of perception. It is by learning to identify God's grace towards us in our lives that we truly benefit from it and respond properly to it through thanksgiving. Yes, grace exists whether we notice it or not, but glorifying God for it and in turn giving it to others is what I see as the highest form, the fullest act of grace. This is supported by W.H. Vanstone's book, Love's Endeavor, Love's Expense, where he communicates the importance of recognizing love for its success. I think uh, we can truthfully replace the word love with grace in the following quotation. I don't know if you can read that, but here it is. For the completion of its work, and therefore for its own triumph, love must wait upon the understanding of those who receive it. The love of God must wait for the recognition of those who have the power to recognize. Within, within a certain enclave of reality, recognition, is, um, recognition or the absence of recognition determines the triumph or the tragedy of love. Unquote. So recognition is a slippery term, but it clearly has some perceptual qualities. The ability to recognize comes with the heightening of the senses and with the knowledge of what to sense. Vanstone continues, and I quote, A work of art creates the possibility of what we may call a responsive creativity. To recognize its quality, a man must, in some sense, order and articulate the impression which it makes upon him. Great art has a greater blessing to give than a vague impression of its greatness. 
Its greatness, and therefore its greatest blessing, is received only through the articulation of its greatness. Only, that is to say, in responsive creativity. Unquote. We could also quote our own Joel Sheasley uh, when he said just a few weeks ago, quote, it's when we become aware of the grace in a place that we sense that we sense our responsibility and our commitment to it. Let's see how this idea plays out in film. When it comes to grace in film, there are so many connections to be made. We could talk about correlations between Christian practices and the act of viewing. We could make metaphors using the mechanism of camera, projector, and screen. We could also talk about the content of movies and how to engage with it. I see grace functioning in film as a medium, and will therefore examine what happens during and after a film viewing. I'll try to stick with just a few points that I see manifesting grace most clearly. These are grace in the reception of a film, the manner in which cinematic images come to us, grace in the response to a film, our mental activity in the theater, and grace in the outgrowth from a film, what happens once we leave the theater. So, first, reception. The way images come to us displays grace in our lack of control over them. Yes, we can pick what movies we watch, but the nature of the cinematographic image prohibits us from knowing all of a movie's images, especially before we watch it. When we sit down to watch a movie, we essentially don't know what we're getting ourselves into. There's surprise built in and a giving up of our expectations in favor of what is presented. Film is a collision of one world into another, the film's world into our own. Now, this sounds really dramatic, but you, and you may not recognize this collision in your own film experience, but I do think it's there if we take the time to notice it. When you think about a movie, it almost always centers around a person or a small group of people. It shows a part of a world, a set of places. It shows events and actions in those places, and in the process reveals economies of value and moral systems. This is a physical, social, psychological, yes, even spiritual world, inevitably radically different from our place and our lives. Horrors and joys are displayed, emotional intensity bursting in on us, catching us up in them and letting us see things that only emotional states can make visible. This is the one-way love of revelation, an undeserved adventure through the world. The release of our own consciousness is grace towards us, like the gift of dreams. We are transported through our senses, flown to the peaks and the troughs of human life, and sometimes beyond human life. A strong example of this unexpected decentering vision is Leviathan, a nonfiction film which was made using footage from dozens of cameras strapped to a fishing vessel off the coast of New England. These images don't do justice to the experience of being dragged through wave after wave for the course of 90 minutes. It's one of the most raw and, and scary presentations of a natural environment that I've ever seen. So this is what film can do. It can bring us into a world that we were formerly just unaware of, even if we know the facts, even if we know that the sea is out there, that people go out and fish, we would never be able to have um, this sort of 
experience and even an experience beyond that of the fishermen because we are put in the waves, not just above them. A posture of openness is essential to receive what cinema gives, although what it gives is not often what we want. We find grace in receiving a film most strongly when there is careful interaction with it. By careful interaction, I mean the limiting of other sources of images. If we fill our lives with images, they will lose their ability to impact us. And for most of us, this has already happened um, through video games and TV and the internet and all that stuff, and movies themselves when they're just in too great of a supply. Um, So at this point, the idea of limiting input is cliche, but it is essential to put stock in particular images. Careful interaction means limiting how you interact with screens in order to receive something special from the moving image. If you give it power, every image is surprising. But that being said, we don't want to be complete ragdolls in front of the screen, getting thrown around by what we see. There should be a conscious, active mindset in in sitting down to watch a movie. And while that mindset is centered around openness to what will appear, it also involves an agenda. Here we get to the paradox of learning. We want, to, we want to learn what we do not know, and we concurrently want to hold on to what we already know. The information inside and outside ourselves often contradict, and so we are faced with a problem. Which do we accept and which do we reject? So there must be a balance between treating film as the disembodied vision and as the active argument. So we can discuss more of this later if you would like Um, but the perspectives of characters should not be so easily dismissed even when they radically differ from our own so here we come to the second point um, on grace and film which is our response in watching a film there's almost inevitably empathy created for the characters on screen film exercises our empathic muscles Definitions of empathy vary somewhat, but generally it is a mimicking or imaginative replication of the feelings or emotions of another. When we look at a character on screen, we often imagine ourselves in their position, taking on their cares and their joys, both those that are circumstantial and those that are innate to them. This procedure takes place powerfully in film because of the elements of cinema I described earlier. The combination of photographic detail and movement, word, music, noise, duration, editing, all these allow for an experience perhaps more visceral than any other art, both good and bad. That's not necessarily just a good thing. Um, But empathy is often more easily generated in the theater than outside it. Unlike most people we pass on the street, we come to know the difficulties Um, of the characters that we see in the film, what they face, and we can approximate what's going through their mind. In a theater, the face of a person can stand 50 feet high, confronting us with their psyche. Seeing the life of another person play out on screen, their time re-inscribed on our own, gives us the chance to take on their viewpoint. There is distance here because of the mediation of technology, yet there is also an intimacy produced through attending completely to the situation of another. Beyond the fact that this opportunity to exercise empathy is itself grace-filled, the empathic aspect of cinema is linked to grace 
in what it produces, a more keen, perceptive view of what takes place in the world. Learning to watch a film might be a related task to learning to recognize grace in our lives. If grace does indeed come to us in the widely ranging ways we've been hearing about for the past six months, isn't it more about learning to see it than making it happen? God's grace to us is constant and does not rely upon our own actions. Yet we still desire it. The satisfaction of this desire is not in some ritual that will channel grace towards us, but in a shift in perception so that we are able to recognize the grace that already surrounds us. This is where film becomes helpful. In watching a film well, we are attending to the concerns of others. We are encountering their world and accepting it as human. More than that, by employing specifically Christian concepts in our cinematic encounters, we can learn to see the truths of our faith play out and therefore see the grace that is already embodied in our world. So third, outgrowth. Film changes us. This is where the last two points have been leading. It, it plants seeds in our minds of images, situations, and feelings. After a film ends is when uh, the work of grace can begin in love for others and an increased awareness of their worlds. One of Paul Zoll's points in Grace in Practice is that law yields only more law, but grace produces grace. The selfless acceptance of a parent for their wayward child is what enables that child to return. In film, we are confronted with human lives and their choices, both good and bad, Film is not just a moral training ground where we play judge and juror. It is an opportunity to expand our interpersonal experience in the witness of human life. If we enter with the intention to learn, I hope we will leave with a greater capacity to love. So let's return to our previous themes of openness and empathy. What fruit do these bring? Empathy does not mean giving up all of our own identity. It means setting aside our concerns for a time to take up the concerns of another. It is then necessary to return to our own concerns with the expectation that we might see them differently, that our own values will have attained a new aspect from the experience of the other, that we can incorporate new possibilities or address new challenges that we receive from cinema's empathic exercise. More importantly, though, Empathy should lead us directly to love, a love that seeks to understand what another is going through while recognizing the essential gap between one human and another. This love means being attentive to another's needs, being ready and willing to act on their behalf. Cinema can train us to see with more heedful eyes, but it does not in itself train us to perform physical works of love. This is the task we are called to after cinema. So now we're going to look at uh, two examples. Um, and the first is just a moment of grace, and the second is a scene of grace. It's difficult to share examples with you because we can't watch entire movies, and uh, it's through the knowledge of the larger narrative and of the particulars within that narrative that grant many cinematic images their meaning. Um, it's through parts and holes that often cinema works. 
But back to our examples. The first example I would like to look at is one shot from Anne-Marie Miville's short film Le Livre de Marie, or The Book of Mary in English, from 1985. The film is about a young girl who lives with one parent and then the other during the parent's recent separation. In this scene, she is staying with her father and is getting bored with her homework. So I think we can see in this shot a moment of grace purely in sound and image. Um, So I'm going to start just a little before uh, this shot that I'm talking about, and I'll read the subtitle in, in case you can't see it from your position. Pérole, c'est celui qui a trois côtés égaux. Le triangle isocèle. Tu m'écoutes, Marie Le triangle isocèle a deux côtés égaux. Et le scalène a trois côtés inégaux. Et cette dessinée aussi, t'en souviendras mieux. Sorry, that is so dark. Um, it's hard to see, but uh, that is a, a wonderful scene. So let's just take it apart a little bit. Um, and if you couldn't see it, uh, basically it was um, the father asking if the girl was hungry, and then you see him on the couch, and all of a sudden her head emerges from behind him with an apple, and they eat the apple. Um, so first, shot composition. There's a space in the frame, and let me just get back to my slides here. So, shot composition. There's a a space in the frame to the left of the father's head, just empty wall. It is not so large as to be gaping or obvious to us, but it's there. Then, it's filled. Second, movement. There's almost no movement in the shot until the dramatic and, for me, entirely unexpected movement of the daughter's head seemingly rising from nowhere. Third, music. The Chopin concerto begins in the previous scene, and the strings build slightly before the soloist enters. This sets up a subconscious expectation. Notice how the piano enters just before Marie's head, which makes the visual entrance all the more surprising. However, the offset motion of sound and image yields a beautiful harmony a moment later when Marie's head comes to rest near her father's and they bite into the apple as the music reaches a cadence. The elements are working together. The frame is empty and then full. The movement is surprising and luminous. The music is drawing towards fulfillment. The effect is entirely unexpected, a breaking in of beauty, generosity, and togetherness. Before the appearance of Marie in this shot, we did not know we needed her. But once she is there, we cannot imagine the scene without her. This is grace, 
unexpected and unexpectedly necessary. Let's look now at another example of grace, this time in the opening of Pierre Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew from 1964. Um, We'll watch the sequence and then uh, kind of walk through it. I won't give any backstory. This is the very beginning of the film, so I think you'll be able to catch what's going on. Giuseppe, figlio di Davide, prendi pure con te senza esitazione Maria tua sposa, perché quello che è generato in lei è opera dello Spirito Santo. Essa partorirà un figlio e lo chiamerai Gesù. Egli infatti salverà il tuo popolo dai suoi peccati. Ecco, la Vergine concepirà e darà alla luce un figlio e lo chiameranno con il nome di Emanuele che vuol dire Dio con noi. 
All right. Well, um, I do love that scene. Uh, let's just walk through it chronologically a little bit um, and see if we can pick it apart. So the, the first shot is a medium close-up of a woman's face, bashful, looking ahead of her. The next shot is of a man, also a medium close-up, concerned, looking forward. A bird chirps, cut back to the woman, who breaks eye contact and looks down. Finally, after four shots, some context is given. A full shot of the woman, now confirmed as Mary, is revealed in her pregnancy, the cause of the man's, Joseph's, concern. Everything falls into place, becomes meaningful, even down to the smallest facial features that Joseph produces. His displeasure is clear, and it is mixed with confusion. Mary's not ashamed, but she understands what this might mean for her pending marriage. The soundtrack of the first half of the scene is so quiet, with only natural sounds and hints of distant singing. The quiet is uneasy, but we don't yet know the full weight of it. With the cut back to Joseph, he walks toward the city, carved out of the hillside. Nearing some boys at play, Joseph sinks down, his fists clenched. We can tell he's so distraught um, just by his gestures. Uh, This cross cuts with the boys until, with him in view, the sound of their play is abruptly silenced. All of a sudden, the natural parallel of, of image and sound is disrupted. For us as viewers, the sense of realism is shattered. Joseph suddenly awakens to hear his name. An extremely brief cut gives us a shot of a girl in white, an angel. Immediately after she enunciates his name, we are brought to her face and focused on her message, which she speaks quickly. As she gives him the news about Mary's pregnancy and urges him not to fear, Joseph again comes into view. At first surprised, his face soon grows to recognition and then joy. Her message ends, and the joyous music of the Gloria from Misa Luba, a Congolese setting of the Latin Mass, explodes onto the soundtrack, accompanying a zoom in on Joseph and Mary's abode. What was just moments ago disturbing to him suddenly becomes magnetic. Now there is joy in the air, and Joseph sees meaning in this improbable situation. The energy is confirmed with a bouncing handheld shot that follows Joseph. It's jagged movements following his own as he moves towards home. Mary walks out of the darkness of the house, her face holding the same expression as she wore before. Joseph enters the courtyard, and Mary's face reveals the faint beginnings of a smile. Joseph smiles, and Mary smiles too. The details of this interchange are simply not possible in any other form. We could see the scene on the stage, but it would be entirely different. The sheer size of the faces brings us into contact with these figures in a spectacular and yet intimate way. We need the quiet landscape. We need Joseph's slow walk and Mary's stillness. We need the laughs of the children cut short by a supernatural invasion. We need the joys of the singing voices and the erratic movement of the camera as it follows. And of course, the faces of Mary and Joseph turning from displeasure to acceptance. Clearly, this is the beginning of a long journey, the spark of, a, of revelation that will sustain Mary and Joseph all the way until the cross. What I'm trying to say is that cinema is more than the sum of its parts, and its meaning is incommunicable in another form. Even now, I'm just pointing to what you just saw and not giving you the totality of what you saw. 
So to close, let's um, just return to that quotation by Bazin. And I'll read it again. Only the impassive lens, stripping its object of all those ways of seeing it, those piled up preconceptions, that spiritual dust and grime with which my eyes have covered it, is able to present it in all its virginal purity to my attention and consequently to my love. In this passage, we can see him touching on both the surprise of film, its revelation that is made possible by mediation, and the fruit of this shock, which is love. Representing the world can illuminate its innate beauty as God's creation. And it is through just this sort of recognition that the work of grace can reach its fulfillment as we respond to God's strong and sacrificial love. Yes, cinema can lead to all sorts of places, but like Bazin, I see its end in love received and with the work of the Holy Spirit, love given. So that's all I have, but if we have time for discussion, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Dr. Trotter. I don't know if I, I, I see that as being a very strong tradition in our culture as emphasizing certain aspects of the visual um, that are detrimental. Um, so I, I certainly recognize those as being detrimental, potentially. Um, but I think what is not recognized is the possibility for good um, that can come from this. So I, I don't want to uh, disagree that those exist. Um, but I want to say that there's more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I'm wondering if one of the challenges in our culture, and maybe any culture, is the fact that very often we don't know what we do know well enough to really deal uh, with what we do not know. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think uh, know, knowing what we know is also a means of 
evaluating what we know so that when we encounter what we don't know, we will have uh, a better way to compare the two as opposed to floundering in, in this in-between space when we're just experiencing without uh, making any sort of um, process of judgment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Is there a particular film that I feel like has made me more loving? Um, I think uh, a film like um, Je vous salue Marie, uh, which is um, directed by Jean-Luc Godard from 1984, is a film, I think it has made me more loving in that it has caused me to question my own idea of love, and it has introduced new concepts of love, um, which I carry with me and try to employ. So yes, that's that's one. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, yeah, I, I think there are lots. Uh, I mean, one one example that pops into my mind is the Safdie brothers, who work out of New York. Um, their films are they, they deal with a lot of hot issues without being message films. So they're really trying to put you in the in, into the worlds, and it's this idea of like this collision of worlds that I find so uh, dramatic in film. So they, they will really put you in, in the worlds of uh, drug addicts and um, you know people who are in very different situations from myself 
and I find that extremely compelling and uh, educational. <laughs> and, and it's also very dramatic and wonderful filmmaking. No, I mean, I think um, I think there is a lot of film that is that is good that's out there. Um, I think, and and you can explore lots of areas of film and find life, and that's what I'm most interested in. Film is is life and life forms, and to witness that. Um, but I think there's an area where when you don't find that so much, and that's blockbuster movies. And the reason is for that is not just I hope not just a, a skewing the popular, but it's because those films are so heavily monitored um, in terms of what the image contains. They're so constructed that it actually leaves very little room for the power of the automatism that's inherent within cinema. Um, so it's almost closer to an animated film, which I think is in a different category. You know, it's, it has its own uh, capabilities, but it's not, it's not film, the, the type of film that I'm exploring in this way. So I think blockbusters are not where I see life most vibrantly, um, but most other types of film. I have made films, and I'm thinking about making more films, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that idea of, of the, not just the narrative being the grace, but the, the, the film, its form, being the grace is so amazing. Right now I'm watching a, an Italian series that's the Acts of the Apostles that was made in the 60s, and it's amazing to watch um, how they represent uh, Pentecost and to watch the apostles run through these very old city streets um, is is so fantastic, and it's something that I could never have imagined because um, I would not have imagined the dirt, <laughs> I would not have imagined the flies, I would not have imagined the the gestures that they're using, um, and of course the, the the range that we have in terms of representation of those stories is is just remarkable. So it's not about making the definitive one. It's about exploring um, the, the ways that these stories can be told, you know, going through them over and over and over and, and seeing uh, more of the richness that's inherent to them. No, I, I think it is worth putting in the work. And I was going to talk about this, but I had to cut it. It was about separating the message of a movie from what we can receive from it. Um, because I, I oftentimes don't go to the movies to receive the message that 
they, you know, the, the primary message that they want me to receive. I recognize that, but what I'm interested in is the things that emerge from the images. Um, and so that sort of exploration I find much more exciting and rewarding, um, and, and doing that with films that seem to have very little love in their message um, is, is still worthwhile for me. Yeah. I, I very rarely stop. Um, I, I think there are some films that I have stopped watching, but most of the time I make a commitment until the end.